All right. Well, we'll get started with with some prayer, and then we'll just hop right, try to pick up where we left off last time. I'll give us a brief summary of what we've done so far, what we've talked about, and then make sense of some things and make less sense of other things. Shall we pray? <clears throat> uh, Lord, we are grateful for for the life that you've given us, for the gift of and hope of eternal life in your Son. And so we lift up this morning to you, our service this morning, as well as our time here, and ask you to speak to us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and uh, just give us understanding. We, we know and trust that you want us to be in your word, talking about it, sharing about it, and we need your help and your guidance. We, we admit we come with all kinds of assumptions, uh, but we ask you to, to speak to us to wherever we are. We ask for our service this morning, that you would bless it with your presence and your, well, your, your presence is what we want and what we need. So ask for that and lift up to you all those families who are mourning this morning, um, passing through difficulty, those who aren't here. You know all of our needs, you know the, the pain that people are going through and you know, Lord, what we need at this moment. And um, so we, we pray for all of those families as well lift up this time to you. Amen. Amen. Well, um, that might help a little bit. So, where we left off last time was talking about Daniel and wanting to look at Daniel chapter 7 this morning. So let me kind of explain why, just so we remember. It's been seven days after all. And the reason we were looking at that was... We were talking about expectations for what comes next. So instead of a little person figure, I drew a little church. I'm getting much better. So the idea was after, well, whenever. Okay, what has to happen next? What is going to happen next? We talked about expectations that we all might have, ideas or thoughts that are out there. And what I'm trying to do is identify maybe a more common understanding today of, of those things, where they come from. And so I put one, two, three, because we talked about actually the most common viewpoint today that you might have heard of has to do with this idea that one, number one, Jesus could come back at any moment. And he only doesn't, he doesn't just come back publicly. He comes back halfway. He comes to the clouds and then he calls up uh, his people, that's a, us, and then we go with him. Uh, and so that's number one. And then he comes again after a period, usually that viewpoint has seven years, a seven year period of time called the Great Tribulation. And then that's kind of like uh, the mo most of it, his return happens then and then he does, well let's say he establishes a kingdom on the, on the, planet, on the earth for about a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years is more or less where everything finishes. And so he's not really coming back then, but he is completing what he started doing in number two. And so it's usually divided up in almost several different comings. And so we, uh, we talked about how that's a very common expectation, that Jesus could come back at any moment. So we wanted to deal a little bit with that. Where does that idea come from? And we looked at the phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds and where that came from in the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus talking about the end. So what I propose to you is that uh, this way of viewing the end has a lot to do with what we understand Jesus to have accomplished on the cross at that moment in history, 2,000 years ago. What did he do? And did, are there things left to be done that he planned to do? So for example, we talked about 
the promises to Israel to be in their land, to have a temple, to have a kingdom, to have a king, the promises of the kingdom to Israel. And the question is, when Jesus came, did he complete that? Did he fail at it? Uh, was their rejection of him kind of the end? And so the, the idea was that in this perspective up here, what they propose is that Jesus put a pause on God's plan for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, and that it will be continued in the future. And that's what all of these things here are happening, are geared towards, is God finishing his work with them. And so there's the seven years, a thousand years, those are all related to something God started in the past and then needs to complete. So he hasn't finished yet judging Israel. They are still under his wrath and then it, it gets paused. And then once it's completed, so once he removes the church, then he continues his judgment on them. That's what the tribulation is for. And then there's ultimate blessing poured out on them for about a thousand years. Uh, and so that, that's how that scheme works. It's based on the idea that when Jesus came and he and John the Baptist were proclaiming the kingdom of God and repent for the kingdom of God is near, the idea is that because most of the people as a whole said no, then God, God decided not to continue with his promises to them, the plan. He will complete it later. And so then, not that, not that we would be plan B, but that then this whole time period called the church age is, is God dealing with, with us. We're distinct from the people back here, the Israelites. God has a plan here that will continue in the future, once we are gone from, from the earth. Just wanted to make sure that was something that, that's going to be a big point for us looking forward. Because that, uh, so far, we're going to be talking about things repeatedly, but... When are we going from the earth? <laughs> yeah, so... No, you just said right here when we're gone from the earth. I'm like, what did I miss? What arrow? No, I'm just saying, uh, under, this, <laughs> under this viewpoint, uh, God will return to deal with Israel. Here, so. God will return to deal with the Jewish people once the church is gone. That's the main premise, okay. is that... Okay. And what this is based on is that what Jesus did here was he offered them something real, and because they rejected it, he will deal with it later. And whatever is happening here is not related. It's, it's, it, it's in discontinuity, that would be the technical term, from the past, when, whenever that happens to come. And so that's why under this viewpoint, whenever there is something happening in the Middle East or to do with Jewish people, uh, there's a lot of conversation about whether we are at the time where we're going to be gone, because clearly God is setting things up to deal with them again. That's usually the premise. And so ever since 1948, uh, in North America, just America, this has been the loudest voice speaking. And then in the 80s, when more books were being written and movies being made, it became even more prominent. And so whenever there is something possibly happening in the Middle East, whether a peace agreement or war, it doesn't matter, uh, usually this begins to get bombarded. We need to get ready because this could be the sign that we're about to leave and so forth. So what, I, what we started talking about was where do, this, where do these ideas come from? Where do we get some of the words like the Son of Man coming on the clouds, which is what we typically assign to Jesus' return. What we looked at in Matthew, and what I wanted to do is us to explore more, what does it mean for Jesus to have done what he did? So before we get to Revelation, we really have to paint a better picture of what do we understand this to have done? Did it really put a pause to Israel, or is there a continuation of plans? Because that would drastically affect how we view the rest of this after us. Can it be both a pause plus? That could be a third. For it. A middle ground kind of a thing. Maybe there is. 
we'll, we'll take a look at that. Right? So when we looked at Matthew 24, what, one thing that was very clear was the phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, comes from the vision in Daniel. So I asked you guys to read Daniel 7, where that vision is found. Because this is, I think, the confusing part. The coming, this word coming, we've always associated with, that means he's coming here. The Son of Man is coming here. He's coming on the clouds. We're going to see him kind of like surfing, and he's going to come down to the earth. And that's what that's referring to, so that all of Matthew 24 is about that. So I propose, why don't we read Daniel 7, where the phrase comes from, and what does the word coming there, what is the vision about? So I, this time we're using the addition of this guy. You can also open up in Daniel chapter 7. If you read part of it, that's great. Uh, the first eight verses have to do with these beasts that come out of an ocean. This is a vision that Daniel is seeing. And they represent different kingdoms. They represent one kingdom, two kingdoms, different beasts. So each one are a kingdom. And then in the reign of the fourth king, in the days of the, the final beast that shows up there, he sees something different. And that's where we will pick up in verse 9. So Daniel verse 9, you can follow along there. Or uh, here it says, as I looked, this is Daniel speaking, there were thrones placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So I guess the question just from that first phrase is uh, where is Daniel? Can you take a guess as to where Daniel might be when he's looking at this, having this vision? Where is the vision situated? Sounds like heaven. Okay, yeah, it's definitely not earth and it's not hell. It's not in the water. It's not under the earth. And where God sits is usually his throne room kind of a place. So it's, it, it's above. It's in the heavenly court. The vision, anyway. And it says, His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So yes, this is the heavenly courtroom, and the beasts are on trial. And basically God is saying, enough is enough, right? Verse 11, I looked, because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, this is one of the rulers that come out of the last beast. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So God says, I'm done with this last beast and kingdom. His time is over. I've decided it. It's done. And then, verse 13 uh, Daniel continues saying, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. So uh, the dominion is taken away here, verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But here, verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there we have verse 13 and 14. This is part of the vision, whether it's a different moment in time or right then when the beast is killed. He sees the Son of Man, and my, my question here is, what, where is the Son of Man going in, this, in these two verses? When he is coming or arriving or going, where, where is the movement? <coughs> what direction is it?
put out there, I've often pondered, is that potentially, I might be way off, but his Holy Spirit in the lives of his people? Is the what? His Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. Like as Prophet Joel said, sons and daughters will prophesy, old men see, dream dreams, young men see visions. Is it his Spirit poured out through his people over all the earth? Here, this uh, vision? Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I don't know, and it's just a thought that came because you said it. I thought, when, and I was getting that from to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Is that then his spirit through us in this land? Uh, I guess before we look at that, the first question we want to kind of limit for us is the vision itself. That would be almost like, what does it mean? Okay. Gotcha. How, how do we like? How do we apply that? But okay. first, we want to say, what is the vision itself? Before gotcha. we get too far ahead of ourselves, and so I just want to focus on what is happening in the vision. Where is the Son of Man going in the vision? Well, he's described here as the Son of Man. So is that his earthly person going? Um, he descended into hell, but he brought glory with him, and his ascending would be back up into the presence of God like his resurrection yeah so before we try to figure out the application or, he's, he's ascending to god he's ascending yeah. to the ancient of days in the vision he's just coming before god yes right so the, the phrase the coming with the clouds of heaven has to do with going towards the heavenly courtroom that's 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 what i wanted us to notice is that daniel 7 in the vision the coming uh, from the perspective of daniel he's standing up there with god so he sees the guy coming that's why he says coming so he wasn't there. He's coming. Like well, he from, Dan, from Daniel's perspective, yeah. he's sitting with the Ancient of Days, and he goes, oh, here comes the Son of Man. Right. Here he comes. That's all that he's saying. He's coming with the clouds. He's arriving up in the heavenly sphere before God. He's not saying, I see the Son of Man going down. No. He's not standing he on earth. He wasn't there with him. Like, if we, if we perceive Jesus as being one with God, then he would have been there with Daniel. But he wasn't. He was coming up. Yeah, and actually the, the title here isn't even a divine title, it's just a human. So that's, that's interesting. Son of Man is literally in Aramaic, a human being. That's all that's being said here. I saw, I saw animals, I saw big beasts that represent kingdoms who are in rebellion with God, and then I saw a human. There was a human arising out of the, uh, in my vision. Because he's actually going to interpret the vision for us a little later, a couple of verses later. So he'll tell us who, who this person is, but... For the, for the moment, the vision is simply arriving in heaven. So the phrase, coming on the clouds of heaven, maybe it's even better to put arriving. Right? So in Hebrew and in Aramaic, the word coming or arriving are actually the same. It doesn't make sense for us in English because coming means to arrive near the speaker and going means to go away. But in Hebrew, you just use the same word. Context will determine it. So technically, this could be the, the going of the Son of Man. Or the coming of the Son of Man. And that sounds confusing. But the vision in seven is very clearly the Son of Man, when he's on clouds surfing, he arrives in heaven to receive a kingdom. And so that's why when we were looking at Matthew chapter 24, you know when they're asking him, interrogating Jesus, the leaders, and who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you going to tell us? And he just says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And that's when they rip their clothes off because they're... They're incensed that he could be claiming such a thing. That he's going to be the ruler. He's going to be the one who comes before God and receives the kingdom and authority because that would put them in the place of enemies, right? If they're 
not really following him. He's kind of claiming, I am going to rule over you. Uh, so that, that gets them all wound up. And throughout Matthew, we saw this a few times. I was trying to point this out. Uh, we see a couple of phrases where Jesus hints very clearly that the coming of the Son of Man would happen during the lives of the disciples. So in Matthew 10, we, we saw this here after he sends them out. I'll, I'll give you a moment to look at Matthew 10. And I guess I could probably drag that in here. So that we could see it more together. So towards the end when Jesus is speaking towards the disciples about them getting persecuted, he sends them out. He does tell them in verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23. He does tell them um, that when they persecute in one town, just flee to the next. I say to you, you won't even have finished this here in Israel before the Son of Man arrives or comes. And so he seems to imply this is one place, there's another place that we see Jesus saying, this is going to happen before some of you even die. The coming of the Son of Man, coming of the kingdom of God. So these phrases are very, very interesting because oftentimes in Matthew and in other places, the coming of the Son of Man is usually to, used to describe this first coming of God halfway into the clouds for us. Right, that was Matthew 24. Wars and rumors of wars. All this stuff are birth pains. And then you're going to see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Lift up your heads. And so the, but the thing is, if that is talking about Jesus' arrival in the heavenly sphere to receive the kingdom before God, then it's not talking about his descent to the earth to remove us from this planet. Is that, are you following the, what we're trying to look at with Daniel 7? The coming he's referring to is... The coming to the kingdom. The, com the coming he's referring to is something that happened here in the first here in the first century, because he tells the disciples, "This generation shall not pass till all this stuff happens." That's Matthew twenty-four, I think thirty-six or thirty-seven. We can actually, I, we can. Well, I'm near Matthew. I can just quickly pull that up. I think it's third. It's in the thirties. Yeah, of that day and hour, this is thirty-six. No one knows, right? The angels don't know, the son doesn't know, the father doesn't know. For as, as were the days of Noah, so will the, be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage, and then Noah entered the ark. And so they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what I'm telling us is that what we mostly hear today is that these phrases are talking about a future event. Whereas it appears that when we read where the vision comes from, Jesus equates it with something that was happening then. His arrival in heaven, the day when the ruler is given all authority and power, the coming of the Son of Man. I find that that phrase is hard to let go in our brains. We attach that phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, with, with Jesus coming. He's going to come one day, but the question is, does that phrase refer to that day, the coming of the Son of Man? That has more to do with a viewpoint that really viewed uh, this right here. Israel is a separate plan that is a put on pause and that the return of Jesus then happens in different sequences in the future and the coming of the Son of Man will happen one day so that what Matthew was talking about 
was several different moments in the future, all kind of jumbled together. It's, it's this big mess in chapter 24 and 25. And we are left to put the, supposedly we are left to put these pieces together. However, throughout time and throughout church history time, that, that has not been the more common understanding of what this passage is about or how we have viewed um, this question of the Son of Man. Yeah, Carol. You know I never, I never heard that, that you know, explained that way. And I always felt like when he said that some of you will be alive, it didn't fit, you know. But I never heard that interpretation. Right, because when we read Second Thessalonians two, mm -hmm. I mentioned that what's supposed to happen next. And oftentimes we think he comes back and we leave. But Second Thessalonians two, Paul says there's actually two things that have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. So how do we reconcile that with Paul saying, no, there's actually two big things, at the least two big things, a grand apostasy of God's people and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Those things, he says, have to happen first, and then Jesus slays him in his coming. So that, that was always, I'm saying, well, well that seems to, it seems to be in conflict with other parts. That's what makes this conversation so complicated. We drag passages and, ver and images and ideas from all over the Bible, but we don't know where they come from, and it paints this picture, it's, it's a little chaotic. And so what, I, what I'm trying to do is explain that viewpoint really is based on this premise. When Jesus comes and offers the kingdom, it, the whole plan gets like, hit the brakes. And then all this stuff kind of swirls. It's like in the car when there's an accident. Like you hit the brakes and it's like, and everything flies. And that's kind of the idea. God, God had this agenda and then this puts this huge brakes and then pieces of it kind of fly out. And, and it's all, and then it's, that's, that's the illustration I have in my head. And then it's all mixed up in the future. So that when you read Jesus in Matthew 24, he's, he's talking about this. And then he switches to talk about this. And then he ends up talking about this. All right, Matthew 24, people always go there for the end. The end will not come until the gospel is preached. And then, but it could come at any moment because it will be like the flood where it just sweeps everybody up. Or, and it's all these different things in the book. And it gets very confusing to figure out what he's talking about. So that's why I want us to start with that phrase, coming of the Son of Man. It's found in Daniel, comes from Daniel, and the expectation. So I would like us to build an expectation to help get to arrive at the cross. And I think at a place that makes a little bit more sense, it's less complicated uh, than, than this scheme. Because then what Revelation is going to talk about, it's either going to talk about this, this, this whole thing, or it's going to talk about the cross and everything else, all together. So the revelation is very different depending on what we assume Jesus did on the cross. All that to say that, Mark. <clears throat> so the bottom line is, you know, uh, as Jesus saying in Matthew, is that it can be any time. Well, that's the question, that, that, right? Is he what was he referring to when he says, uh, no one knows, it's going to be like, no one's expecting it, like a thief in the mm -hmm. night. What was he referring to? Because he seems to be referring to the coming of the Son of Man that way, which would have been something... But he was already here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the vision is the arrival of the Son of Man in heaven, not his return to the earth. So we, we confuse coming with return to the earth. Okay, back to the, back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their, their whole problem with Jesus. Okay. What, and uh, they supposedly were expecting the Messiah. Yeah. What did they expect the Messiah to be? He was in front of them. But what did they expect? What did they expect him to be? 
he was doing all these miracles and he was doing and he was born of a virgin and but they said he was a they said he was illegitimate son you know so what really were they looking for they were the teachers they were the authorities yeah it's hard to answer that question because they don't they don't tell us Outside of what we have in the Gospels, they don't say, hey, this is what we wanted, or this is what we think, you're not it. They just reject him flat out, you know, from, from the beginning. So it's hard to know. We don't have a whole lot, um, historically speaking, outside of the Bible that sheds light on the answer to that question. But were they not looking for a, a, a leader, uh, like a king, or somebody that came in authority, and that didn't happen, and that's what threw the brakes on their, on their thinking? Okay, so... This, this is a great, we're going to run with this question. What were people expecting before Jesus came? Uh, so that maybe that's why Jesus didn't fit the bill. We'll, we'll talk about that further. So I think we have also, a, that's also a cloudy, a cloudy area. So when we talk about something like Messiah, oftentimes we think that um, they were expecting a Messiah with a capital M. One big, one big guy called Messiah. Uh, so, what we know from a little bit of their writings and, and using the Bible is that no one had an expectation for one Messiah. They believed in many Messiahs. That's because this word just simply means anointed. The, uh, the anointed one. And so the anointed one, kings were anointed, so there was an expectation for a king. Um, Priests, the high priest especially, was anointed. So there was an expectation for a, a Messiah priest because they needed to reinstitute the temple sacrifices. They needed to do that. And uh, there also needed to be a big prophet because the uh, Malachi says that Elijah would return before the big day of God comes back. So at the very least, there were three Messiahs that they expected. A ruling figure a prophetic figure, and some sort of priestly figure. And several people tried to claim one or two of these throughout their history, leading, leading up to Jesus' arrival. And then even after, there's, a, there's an immense um, battle that took place around the 120 era with a guy who claimed to be the son of David. And many Jews, this was the last hurrah for the Jews. They got annihilated in 70 AD, and then about 50 years later, Bar Kokhba, uh, is a guy who many rabbis thought, this is our guy, and they all rallied around him, and they were almost exterminated. So there was an expectation for several different types. There was also a pretty big expectation that the people themselves, they are called many times in the Psalms, and, in, um, and potentially in Isaiah, the people are called God's anointed, God's Messiah. And so the people also felt that they would be somehow part of God's plan to rule the world. So they viewed Messiahship as multi-layered, not expecting one person in particular. So someone claimed to be the Messiah, the question would be like, which one? Which one are you going to be? Are you going to work in the priestly area? Are you going to work in the royal king kind of area? And Jesus didn't, he didn't walk around touting his pedigree, you know, his genealogy. He didn't say, I have the bloodline of David. He, he had nothing to do with priesthood. So he wouldn't have been a priest, at least Levitic, Levitically speaking. Um, I'm sorry, Levit Levitically. And he had no real connection to any prophets. 
So it was, it was kind of hard for him, in their eyes, to make a claim to, to anything. So that just trying to, what, what were they rejecting about him? It's probably everything, you know? They probably didn't want anything to do with him. Uh, but the Bible paints, I feel like, them even worse than that. They didn't even care about God, period. Their interests were themselves. You know, like the whole process they went through, through lying, they weren't honestly seeking for the Messiah in Jesus' trial. They were bringing in false witnesses. They were paying people off. These were corrupt politicians who could care less about the Torah. You know, they just wanted power. So it was probably many reasons why they rejected Jesus fully head on. As one, anybody who was a threat to their position, we don't like him. It sounds pretty present. Yeah, it's, it's the same. Same story. Same old story. Uh, I, um, I always believed in the rapture. I follow David Jeremiah a lot, and I really like his teachings. And is it, I just want you to say yes or no, is it wrong to believe that? Is it, I mean, like, you think it's wrong? I, I'm, it's hard to say that because you're accusing somebody else who, yeah. David Jeremiah has thought about this a lot longer than I've been alive, so yeah. it's, it's yeah. hard to really be like, oh, you're wrong on this. But I can say that the premise of what he believes on has to do with this again. The premise is that this viewpoint, the, the title, the name for this is called Dispensationalism. That's the title for this viewpoint that really came into prominence in the 1800s in Europe and migrated over to America and be, this became its base. This wasn't something the church believed in at large because it didn't exist in the past. So the idea here is that what Jesus came and did, the offering of the kingdom of God and the coming of the Son of Man, have to do with ethnic Jews. Uh, that, that was the idea introduced a few hundred years ago. And so therefore, whatever happens in the church age is entirely separate from this, and this has to be finished. And so when Jesus speaks about the future, he talks about various things. Sometimes it's the church and then sometimes it's the future end of the world through through Israel. So they, they mix up all these different, they have to split up Jesus' return and several comings for that to make sense. Now what has maybe historically been a more, I don't know, we, the church has never been super, super absolutely clear on everything, but there's one big assumption the church makes is that when Jesus came and uh, he offered the gospel and the kingdom of God, that it arrived. Kingdom of God arrived with Jesus, that his offer was real, and it was received by some Jews, but eventually it became mostly Gentile, and that, that really was the kingdom of God. And that the followers of Jesus then, they become the, that people of God that um, were expecting these promises, and that outsiders now get included. And so therefore what happens is that this, the vision of Daniel, the coming of the Son of Man, the arrival of the kingdom of God is understood to have happened with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And so that then people, the doors were open for whoever wants to follow Jesus can now participate in the people called Israel. And there's a continuity that, that flows through. Instead of a break that goes like this, then the idea is that this people group now, the definition of who is Israel becomes expanded to whoever participates and is part of Jesus. Since he is the truest Israelite, if we share in him and he is in us and we in him, then we become part of that family. 
I let me look at let's look at a couple of places where I think this. What's the hundred and twenty again? I'm sorry, that was the year of the revolt. Okay. Sorry, right. let's just for our confusion, okay. let's just not have that. Because the arrow went right to it, you know, didn't it? <laughs> so it made it seem like that was had something to do. Let's start counting. So um, I think one place we can see this. We'll start in Ephesians. Let's actually to get to Ephesians, you have to go through Romans. So why don't let's skip Romans for now? Let's start with Galatians. Right. <laughs> As I'm thinking about it, because you have to go through Galatians to get to Ephesians anyway. That might be a easier. So I'll Galatians and um, it's chapter three. And once we read this, we'll read that in conjunction with Ephesians, but we'll, we'll start here. This isn't as clear. Ephesians will be clearer, but let's start with Ephesians 3, and we will start at verse 23. All right, so now, Galatians 3, 23, yeah. It says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Then the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under this guardian, the law. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. And so far so good. Amen to that. All right, everyone who follows Jesus is in him is a son of God and we're justified by faith. We do not need to follow the law. Now we keep going. Uh, where were we? Uh, for as many of you as were baptized into the Messiah, right? Let's say it that way. It might be easier. Whoever participates in the Messiah and have put on the Messiah, uh, there is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave or free, nor male or female. You are all one in the Messiah, Jesus. And if you are the Messiahs, you are Abraham's seed. You become heirs according to the promise. This is enormous Enormous statements that would have been just earth-shattering. How could you become part of Abraham's seed? Literally, Israel is defined by their bloodline connection to Abraham. How can someone become part of Abraham's seed and not be part of the bloodline? Well, because Jesus makes that possible. We have Jesus' blood now uh, in our place. His identity is our identity. This is part Adop of what this stuff. Adoption. Adoption, exactly. So this becomes clear in Ephesians 2. So turn over to Ephesians 2, which is just a few, one or two pages away. Ephesians chapter 2. This might be the, um, it's what really brings this together. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verse 11. 2, 11. Therefore remember, are we there? Okay. Therefore remember that at any one time you Gentiles, outsiders, who were called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, so the Jews, which is made by flesh. Remember that you were separated from the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth, the statehood of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope without God in the world. But now, in the Messiah, Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. He is our peace, who has made us both one, 
broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? We can say amen to all, the things, all those things, but we keep going. By, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he might create in himself one new man. There is this new thing that isn't defined anymore by Abraham's blood, but by Jesus' blood, who is the truest Jew, right? the truest Israelite might reconcile us both to God, one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So there's, there is no more separation between a Jew and a Gentile based on Jesus' blood. So then 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are citizens. Not citizens of heaven, citizens of the people of God, right? Citizens of the Israel of God, of God's people, the true the true Israelites, so to speak. So there is this grafting in of us into the people of God. There is a continuity. Now, this is what was so... This is why in the first two centuries, the biggest persecutors of the church weren't the Romans, although they were big. It was the Jews. They wanted to eradicate Paul. They wanted to eradicate anybody preaching the gospel. One, because they were saying, it's not about your bloodline anymore, and it's not about your law anymore, even though those things were good and had their time. But the time came. It was fulfilled. The Son of Man has arrived. The biggest proof that Jesus had come before God in heaven, that he had ascended and received the authority, would have been the fulfillment of his words to the Israelites, to the Jews. So Matthew 23, 24, Jesus says, this place is not going to stand. Stones are going to be removed all the way to the foundation, right? Because you've rejected me. And so basically, he's associating his promise of destroying the city with the veracity of his claim to be the Messiah. So that the coming of the Son of Man would have been fully seen and felt by everybody when Jerusalem was attacked, just as Jesus says it would be, and destroyed. That's what Matthew 24 is all about. The days of the end, it's, it's the end of that city. Because as long as that thing is standing, it's almost like a sign of a past age. Right? As long as the temple is still standing, it still yells out all the time, there is a separation between you and God. There are people that have to go in there for you. You can't go in there yourself. It's covered. It's veiled. As long as that is still standing, the book of Hebrews says, it's the sign of the past age. It's not finished yet. And so what Jesus is basically saying, I've done everything and the proof will be in the pudding. When I do what I say I'm going to do, destroy the city and just get rid of the temple, because now there is a new, a whole new way of being the people of God, right? The, the way of the new covenant of the Spirit of God, of uh, Jesus in us, of not having a one place. Imagine if we still had to go to one place on the earth to return to that way of, of doing things. You could only worship God in Jerusalem. You couldn't go wherever you wanted to. We get to go to wherever church. We can move this building somewhere, and we can still have church. We don't have to like go through a process of getting permission from God. Can we go over here to meet? Will you make that your dwelling place? We, that's because we're living in the new age, the new covenant, the age of the Spirit of God. We worship in spirit and truth. Those were all things promised to Israel, not to some other group that he would create in the future. We are living in all of the promises in age, in promises of the people of God that he made in the past. So the cross is very significant. How we understand the cross is it completing the promises of God, or did it put a pause on promises to an ethnic bloodline that need to be fulfilled later? For example, I'm throwing some more at you. Under this perspective of, of the end, which sometimes we understand parts of it, but we don't see the big picture, 
the idea here is that as soon as the church is gone, and there is this period of time here, usually called the seven years tribulational period. I'll just put seven years. During this time frame of the seven years, there is a reversal back to the way things were before Jesus. Now, because the church is the age of grace, and so therefore once it's gone, God's now dealing with Israel again. He must revert to the Mosaic Covenant. And so there has to be a temple, and there has to be sacrifices uh, happening during that time frame. All must be back for God to be working. And then he has to destroy it again, because he hasn't finished his judgment. That's, that's the whole point. This is what I think people are not familiar with enough, is that this perspective holds that once we have been raptured, once we are gone, that God returns dealing with Israel the same way he dealt with them before, under the Mosaic Law. So all of those things have to return, the sacrifices, the blood, the priesthood, everything has to return as it was, because Jesus hasn't finished judging them, because Matthew 24 hasn't been fulfilled. The temple has, has to be destroyed another time. So that once that's done, he rebuilds another temple, where there is a, a different set of sacrifices in place that are meant to be more uh, memorial, more reflective of, of the past. So there's a, there's a, a large... A very big theme on on who the people of God are and how do we worship Him, and that we would be living in a very unique a unique moment in in time. So that that's a relatively new development in uh, in church history and of thinking. It has captivated our imagination because there are books and movies made about such a thing. So, so just realize that the, the main premise starts back here. That that when Jesus came, He had to put a pause on a lot of things. And then he's doing something unique. So somebody, you asked me, Carol, was that wrong to think that way? There is a logic to it. And, yeah. and who knows? Maybe this is the correct way to understand this. right? But, it, but if you start from a different premise about what Jesus did, how he accomplished things, this becomes a mute point. This, this, this is unnecessary. The seven years are unnecessary because, because God pours out all of his wrath on Israel on Jesus. He takes the brunt of it, and what's left over is his, is his dealing with the temple and the city back then, 2,000 years ago. So that's all been dealt with. Then what's left is God building his kingdom on the earth. So the vision of Matthew 7 is that once the Son of Man arrives and receives authority, he begins to rule. And he rules a kingdom that cannot be shattered and will not pass away. And so the, the big question that sometimes this viewpoint throws out, it says, hey, if you think that Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom, then where is it? Because things look almost the same as they've always been. This is an awful kingdom, is it not, then? Yeah, that, 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 I think, is a worthy question, right? If, if indeed you're claiming the kingdom of God came, the Son of Man came, and his kingdom started, then, then is this it? Is this all there is? Because this, this seems like we just keep repeating the same. And then it comes back to what she was saying about the Holy Spirit. you got to remember that event, too. <laughs> yes, and it also... With where is God's kingdom? It also comes back to what kind, what kind of kingdom are we assuming, right, that we're expecting? We are... That line of thinking understands that for a thousand years, Jesus will reign on the earth like humans rule on the earth. It will force people to obey him, and he will, he will cut down on any sin done. And for a thousand years, there will be peace because he will enforce it perfectly. And then, and then in the end, they will rebel because humans are awful. That, that's the idea here. But the idea is they're expecting Jesus to rule just like humans rule today. Like, 
enforcing law with force. And what this perspective says is that Jesus rules in a very different way. He taught us how he's going to rule. And actually, he showed us the way he rules over evil is on the cross. He actually suffers. So we have a, this is what we call the, the suffering uh, servant. We call it Jesus the suffering servant. But this is like the suffering kingdom. He, he rules right now. He has presently been given all authority and power at the end of Ephesians 1. Everything's under his feet. But he rules differently than how humans would rule. He rules by coming and then being humiliated, being beaten, being rejected, and maintaining his commitment to the Father. And then he says, you guys are going to do just like me. This kingdom is going to be implemented just like I implemented it here. It's going to be just like this. And so what's fascinating, and I'll just throw this nugget out here before we end, is that the book of Revelation, I talked about a, a a centerpiece for the book of Revelation, that there are, there's kind of like a, a big moment in the book that, you know, we have chapters 1 through 22, but the real big centerpiece is chapters 4 to 5, because this is the vision of the Lamb, right? And it says there that the Lamb arrived up there and he overcame, right? The line of Judah has has overcome. He, he, uh, he is victorious. That's the line. That's what overcome means. To win. To, to, yeah, to overcome the enemy. To overcome an obstacle. Whatever it is. And then it says the lion is victorious. And how is the lion victorious? If you can just think off the top of your head. It's a very well-known kind of image. The lion of Judah is also... starts with an L. The lamb. The lamb. So they, they have the same thing. But it's not just a lamb, it's a slain lamb. It's a dead lamb. That's, what, that's literally what chapter 5 of Revelation says. The line of Judah conquered. How do we know? Because there's the dead lamb over there, still standing, as if he was dead. He conquered. He ruled. So the Revelation sets up almost the answer to the question of, well, where is this kingdom? It's in the suffering kingdom. It's in the people who suffer along with Jesus. Because the question the church was asking in the first century is, why are we suffering? We're being persecuted from the Jews. We're being persecuted by the Romans. How could Jesus be our Messiah if we're sitting here under the conditions that we're in? I think the book of Revelation is the answer to the question. This is, what, this is who Jesus is. This is what he did. He is the suffering king. And he's called us to participate in this kingdom. So out of the two letters, the two churches, in chapters 2 through 3, which are the seven, the seven letters to the seven churches, there's only two that are faithful to Jesus. And those are the two that Jesus says, you're about to die. He doesn't say, oh, you've been faithful, so you're going to be blessed, and you're going to escape all evil. It's actually all the people who he judges, they experience evil too. But the worst ones are the ones who are faithful. The second and the sixth church. They're the ones that Jesus says, just endure it to the end. I have the keys of Haiti. I have the keys to life. You're going to go through hell, basically. Because Satan's synagogue, Satan's kingdom is where you live. And because you've been faithful to me, I will, I will keep you. But not keep you from suffering, not keep you from the difficulty. I'm going to make sure you don't, get, you don't fall under the pressure, that you don't cave. That's the message of the book, is that Jesus rules differently than other kingdoms do. And therefore, his followers will live in that rule the same way. It's very different. And then he will have an end. He will say, just like the vision of Daniel, son of man, enough is enough. And God will have his day in court with every injustice ever, ever done. That, that's the final vision of the book. 
But what it presents to us, the message to the church is, you're, you're fine, you're okay, and suffering is part of the plan of God. For the people of God, it has always been part of that plan. Yeah, well, and Jesus said, don't be surprised that, <clears throat> don't be surprised that you're, 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 if you're rejected and persecuted, because they've rejected me, and they've persecuted me, and says you're going to just need to endure much suffering. Yeah, so, so the question of, are we going to be here for, you know, when it gets hard, that would have been a weird question for the first audience of this book, because they were already in it. There is no avoiding anything worse than having your children slaughtered because you're a Christian. There's nothing worse than knowing that other Christians are being eaten alive in stadiums, right? There isn't, oh, but at least we're going to escape the tribulations. Like, what are you talking about? And that, that's been the same perspective even today. In the last, uh, you know, this generation has seen more Christian persecution than all the other centuries combined. Right? We're just, we just live in a different bubble of the world at the moment that we, we don't feel that quite yet. We just hear stories about that. But most Christians will be like, what do you mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to escape you know, difficulty or trial or judgment on the earth. It's, it's already as bad as it gets for a lot of people. Yeah, so that's not the message of the book at all. It's almost saying Jesus also experienced this and how us following with him means we will, we, will join, we will join in that. But this is how the kingdom of God expands and rules. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's, it's not going to be like the rest of the human world, like the beasts. The beasts rule differently than the human does. That's the big... Uh, catcher for, for people as they as Jesus is saying I am the son of man I am the ruler I am the Messiah I am the king I just rule differently I have a whole different kind of way of ruling if you look at the martyrs mirror uh, and if you're familiar with that I'm sure the, the book of martyrs the martyr martyrs yeah Fox's yeah. book of martyrs yeah. and uh, they and what what is happening today pales yeah, I'm talking about all over the world pales to that you know, in comparison to that, because those people were burned at the stake, they were, uh, tongues were cut out, it was, yeah, I mean, it, it would be for, for the Anabaptism, because of being rebaptized. Yeah, right. even 500 years ago, Christians yeah. were persecuting yeah. each it's other. Happening. But it's happening yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's there's a lot of bloodshed now, too, we, oh, yes, we're just not yeah. as aware of it as maybe we, we right. can be. I am feeling quickened by the Spirit of the Lord, though, to share a word of, um, Freedom and life. And it's right out of 2 Corinthians 3.17. Yeah, we're called to be the suffering church, but we're also told this. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I love what follows. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. And in being an overcomer, if we love our lives not even, I mean, even unto death, I trust that the glory of the Lord will be glorious in that moment by the Spirit of the Lord. It might be the most glorious then. And so we're not left comfortless. That's true. Yeah. That's it's right. Not that our, what we're being persecuted for is actually the platform that God has revealed. Like, you no, know, but nobody would hold to something going through what people are facing today in persecuted nations. Um, and, and it's coming here. We're blind and stupid to, well, it's think, it's, yeah, it's to think that it's now. not coming here. But when you are um, shining for Jesus as you're 
experiencing that, that speaks volumes to the people who are actually doing um, the persecuting of you. And God's purpose, why is he doing that? Is because he cares about them too. He wants them to put their hope and trust in him. It's not, it's not without purpose. It has a purpose. It has a purpose to reveal God to the people who are in the moment rejecting him. Yeah. The, John has a unique way of writing. <coughs> he will flip words upside down oftentimes. Like the word overcome, victorious, he uses the word differently than what it normally means. It doesn't ever mean something about humiliation. And he attaches it to the humiliation of Jesus, to be overcomer. He does the same thing with the word lifted up, which is normally to mean, you know, you're exalted, you are well respected, you are honored. And in the Gospel of John, it says that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was lifted up. But it's, it's the opposite moment. The moment that humans look at humiliation, Jesus looks at it as exaltation and being lifted up. So it's, it's a difference of perspective. You know, I, I view this with my human values as opposed to the uh, God heavenly values. And so that's, I think Revelation is going to do that, is to change our values, how we, how we view what's happening, not so much reveal all the steps of what's going to happen in the future. It's just having us rethink what, what are we supposed to be thinking about the present, the future, and even the past. What did the past mean for what Jesus accomplished? So all, all of that was, I feel like, more so necessary before we get to the book, because it gets very, very confusing in and of itself already. But if we start with a kind of a baseline that what Jesus accomplished was the beginning of the kingdom, then I think what he has to say to the churches, the vision for the church, is, is going to be more relevant. It'll, be, it'll make more sense. It'll be less placed in the past or in the distant future. It'll be a lot of, this actually has application for us today. It's the same message for us today, which is what... Claude, you pointed out the first few verses, Jesus says, this is about something happening now, quickly. It's a message for the churches today, 2,000 years ago, as well as for the present. So we pushed a little further in timing-wise than maybe we should have, but that's it. We'll get upstairs. We've got to get ourselves going. We'll, we'll finally get into Revelation 1 next week now. I feel, unless, unless we have more questions, we can also you know work our way around those things, but we'll... We'll attempt to get into the book next week.